This is the Sensitive Rebel Podcast, and I'm your host, Steve McCready. Join me for conversations with fellow sensitive rebels as we discuss the challenges of making a difference in a world that touches us deeply. If you're ready to turn your sensitivity into a secret weapon, then you're in the right place. Let's do this. Hey, Sensitive Rebel. Hope you're doing well and uh, that wherever you are, it is not as hot as it is here. I'm recording this intro on uh, Saturday, July 10th, and we are expecting a high of 112 degrees here in Sacramento, which is not unheard of in the summer here by any means, but that doesn't make it any more pleasant. One thing I wanted to warn you about before we get into this episode today is that not only is there a fair amount of, um, shall we say, coarse language, but also there are some very sensitive topics that we get into today. So this is definitely an episode that might not be suitable to listen to around younger ones or more sensitive ears. So I just wanted to make you aware of that. My guest today is Adam Lamb. Adam is a speaker, author, coach, and consultant to the hospitality industry as an expert in mental health and wellness, addiction, organizational culture, and mentorship. Known as the Quantum Chef, Adam has been a professional chef for over 30 years and is also the producer and host of the podcast Chef Life Radio, dedicated to inspiring professional chefs working towards a more equitable and sustainable culinary culture. Adam's published works include Getting Comfortable with Being Uncomfortable, Profanity in Its Proper Use, and An Initiated Man, Finally. His newest book, Circle Jerk, Lessons of Manhood My Father Never Taught Me, is due in summer 2022. He lives with his wife, Jennifer, in the Blue Ridge Mountains, where he produces a line of pepper sauces and makes goat cheese in his spare time. As you can tell from that intro, Adam is somebody with a really broad and interesting range of interests and experiences, and you're going to hear that throughout our conversation today, not only as we talk about his history working in restaurants and in the hospitality industry, but also as we talk about his life story, his family a tragic event that occurred within his family, how that affected him and the family, and a whole lot more. And now, here's my conversation with Adam. Adam, thanks for coming on the show. How are you doing today, man? Thanks, Steve. I'm doing great. Appreciate you having me on. We're going to, I think, get into a few different things today here, so I'm looking forward to it. But where I'm going to start is uh, where I usually do, which is with the question of what are you rebelling against? Earlier in uh, my life, I would say just about everything. But I think right now what I'm doing uh, professionally is rebelling against this idea that specifically within my kind of ken, which is hospitality and restaurant life, you know, this idea that uh, toxic culture is the way it's always going to be. It's always the way it's been. Suck it up, sunshine. So there's this idea that I have or I've had for a while that things don't have to be necessarily harsh. They can be hard, but because some of us have been brought up in a way that was, to put it bluntly, abusive, we think that that's the way that it has to be for others coming up. And that's just not the truth. Tell me how you would differentiate between hard and harsh. I uh, have a very specific idea in mind. Once the machine starts, the ticket machine starts going off, it's five o'clock. You can feel the energy ramp up in the restaurant and certainly in the kitchen. And now things are scrambling. But if everybody's organized in such a way and the culture is such that everybody's together, then there's nobody that's on the outs. Nobody's trying to shame someone else. No one's trying to take the piss out of somebody. It's all about how we're going to support one another in order to get the job done. Hours fly by, have no idea what happened, and it's 10 o'clock, last ticket comes in, and all of a sudden everybody gets this sigh of relief. <sighs> and they start looking at one another going, how, how did we do that? Now, 
Conversely, I've been in kitchens where someone doesn't get enough honey mustard dressing on the line. They all of a sudden get shamed in front of others. I tell you what, I'm going to come to your house. I'm going to burn it down and then I'm going to salt the ground so that nothing ever grows up. That's what you get when you don't set your station. <laughs> like, just don't need that. There's this idea about getting tough, building up skin. I think as creatives, we're all inured to this particular lie that we have to build up a thick skin in order to be successful. And my experience has shown that it's only when you're vulnerable and transparent that really true success comes. I, I think this sounds like is it's about thinking about it from a cooperative or collaborative space versus a competitive space, right? Where it's collaborative, it's like, sure, it might be busy, it might be hectic, it might be crazy, we might be struggling, but we are operating as a team trying to support each other and get through this versus we're looking for someone to throw under the bus so it's not us going under the bus. I'll be the first one in line to admit that for most of my career, I was a perfect victim. I was never necessarily my fault. There were others that I was overseeing, so I could point the finger just about in any direction when you know service suffered. And it came a while for me to understand, as a chef, the apex predator in the particular Venn diagram that we have, that it's all my responsibility. You know, I get all the blame and all the praise go to the crew. So when it was all about me, there was a very short list of things that I could do in order to facilitate a beautiful evening for everybody, the restaurant uh, guests, the people who work there. But when it became we, I spent a lot of time in conversation with people, not really even doing a whole lot. I would stand next to them elbow to elbow, maybe chopping some onions, making some tomato concasse. There's this really weird dynamic that comes about when you don't have to look somebody in the eye. There are all kinds of conversations show up. Oddly enough, my wife and I spent some time with a relationship coach over the last year or so. And one of the things that she said to us is like, when you go out and talk, instead of sitting across the table from one another, go out on the patio and look out in your backyard and how beautiful it is, or get in the car and drive. And there's something about being elbow to elbow facing outward that allows an expansion of conversation and truth to come out that wouldn't necessarily happen when you're eye to eye with somebody trying to stare them down, trying to get them to understand that this is the way it needs to be. That's really cool. I like the the it's a shifting of perspective, both physically and relationally, right? But it is really powerful, I think, in ways that maybe people don't get. So I really like that idea. And I can hear how, you know, bringing it into the world of, of restaurants, how that could really apply as well. That's very interesting. I'm often struck by how in most any professional kitchen anywhere in any city, it's the microcosm of the macrocosm. So you might have people from 12 different cultures speaking eight different languages and to be able to be successful in that environment, moving all those people forward towards one particular end takes a, an ability to communicate that goes far beyond anything that I was ever taught in school or by any other circumstance other than actually being in it and failing many times. Talk about a challenging leadership job, right? It's hard enough to get one team that has a lot in common. And then you get these teams that have all these, <laughs> these sure, the common piece of being in this restaurant, but so many differences about backgrounds, life experience, how they communicate. What a challenging thing. So no surprise that you probably didn't get that class in anywhere along the way. Right. <laughs> I started washing dishes when I was 15 years old. It was a restaurant right around the corner from my folks house. Probably one of the reasons I got the job is my dad would go there every morning and he would like joke and kid around with the waitresses. He was a college professor. So I remember hating the job washing dishes, man. It was so bad. As a matter of fact, I would take like really baked on pans and stick them up in the popcorn ceiling, you know, with the drop panels, I'd stick them up so no one would ever see them. 
But one Friday I came walking past the kitchen and there was this dance that was occurring right before my eyes. There were two cooks, both women, one heavy, one thin, one severe, one laughing, one with glasses, one without. And they did this wordless ballet in the heat of the a rush when pans are banging and steam is coming up and the lights are hot. And I was just dumbfounded at how beautiful it was. So really never got in the culinary industry because I wanted to make my own type of cuisine. I had this vision in my head. It was all about the relationship, man. I wanted some of that. I wanted to know what it felt like to be part of that kind of juice, man. It was, it was rich. It really was. So really, I'm hearing that this, you said dance, literally, you know, this, this relational interplay was something that really spoke to you very loudly. And I think that's a great jumping point because I want to talk more about your personal history and how you came, you know, to the restaurant industry. We know the entry point now, but tell me about earlier in life and why you think it is that this, seeing this, it was so compelling to you when you did. I think uh, primarily for me at that point in my life, it was because it meant being part of something, meant being part of a community. I was always very gregarious when I was growing up. I wrestled. I was, you know, junior class president. I could hang out with the stoners on the G bench and do Tom Sawyer on stage. I did it all. But somewhere in high school, things kind of went sideways. I woke up one morning and found out that my sister had been raped and she accused me of doing it. And even though I knew I was innocent, no one was really going to believe me. And so at that point, just prior to that, probably the day before, my life looked completely different. I was going to go to Iowa State. I was going to wrestle with Dan Grable. I was going to you know, major in art. I was going to do all this different stuff. And within about 12 hours, I had to consider that I might be the monster that they thought I was, even though I knew in my heart that I didn't do it. But you can only protest so much. And so I walked away from quite a bit. At that point in my life, I walked away from wrestling, started smoking, drinking, hanging out with the stoners. You know, now I was going to be rock and roll. I was going to be the bad boy because basically that's what everybody thought of me. And I realized that I willingly at that point gave my power away to what others believed in me. As a 60-year-old guy, I can look back and say, geez, what a dummy. But to a 16, 17-year-old kid, he did the best he could with what he had at the time. So the allure of belonging to something else really spoke to me. And I tried to do other jobs. I tried to sell jeans and Tom McCann shoes, if you can believe it. I don't think that's a brand anymore. But the kitchen always called me back. So that's where I felt most comfortable. That's where I felt most powerful. That's where I felt most relational. So it was home to you. Yeah. Really? That was a home away from like... home for sure. You have the family that you're born with and the family that you make. Now, before this incident with your sister occurred, what was the experience of growing up to that point in your family and in your home like? And my mother was Cuban. My father, who was an American, went to Cuba in 1957, 58, without knowing anything about Cuban people or the Spanish language. And he came back. He was so enamored that he went back to university to teach it at the graduate level. And my mother had met him, and she kind of set her cap to him. And it took her a couple of years, but she showed up on a stoop in Boston one afternoon and said, hi, Tony, how are you? He said, Isabel, what are you doing here? Well, it was just the neighborhood. I thought I'd stop by. Maybe the last time he'd seen her has been Caibati in Cuba. So it was only later that my mother told me that it took a year of a hard press for her to convince him to marry her. And subsequently, I was born 10 months later, and my brother was born nine months later. So it was pretty quick. But I think my father always felt somehow, I don't want to say trapped, but I think there was a part of his life that he imagined that could have been that he was wistful about. I remember him 
tell me once or twice that all he really aspired to is to play, you know, honky tonk piano in a broken down bar for tips. And here he's got four kids. He's chair of a language department at a major university with a woman who is pretty dynamic and feels like she's always running to catch up. My mother came from a household in Cuba where you didn't walk across the street with a man unless he was part of your family or your husband. And here she lands in the United States in 1960s. It's the beginning of the rock and roll revolution, the feminist revolution. Every single time she turned around, she was running to catch up. So it was tough for both of them. After a while, they just couldn't speak to one another. It sounds like a lot of different challenges there. And I could see how, well, in my mind, the thing I'm I'm imagining, right, is like, okay, how is this going to impact you and your siblings? Because I'm thinking, man, that's a lot of stuff taking a lot of attention and energy. And is there enough to spare to give you and all your siblings what you need to help you grow up? Growing up as the eldest, and especially the boy, there's all kind of connotations for the Latino families. I remember my mother saying many times that it was my responsibility to make sure that she was taken care of in her old age. Can't tell you how grateful I was when she found a boyfriend because it literally was like an albatross around my neck or the sword of Damocles hanging above my head. But as far as my sister was concerned, there was so much going on that after a couple of weeks, nobody talking to her, nobody saying anything, she just left. And she was 15, engaged in a series of relationships with men who were older than her, constantly looking for the, the love that she should have gotten from her father without any type of shame around it. But my sister had a little bit of my mother in her. She was very vivacious, still is very vivacious and incredibly intelligent. So he was in his dented sense of masculinity, very put off by the whole thing. Like she got to a certain age and he wouldn't hug her. He wouldn't give her a kiss and all that kind of weirdness. And because of his doubt, yeah, his masculinity definitely affected us. And the fact that he wasn't secure enough and grounded enough in his own sense of self that he could actually stand for us without it having to make anything up other than we're just a group of people who love one another. And I think for me, that's been the thing that I've been most fighting against in my life is that I have this vision, this perception that, you know, in the original human design, love is just love. And we are built to be communal and connected. And when there are people who willingly pull themselves back, shade themselves, armor themselves, ghost others, that really pisses me off. What were the lessons, either implicit or explicit, or stories that you remember hearing growing up in this home as it relates to feelings? And at what point did you recognize that piece of your identity and how it sat relative to others in your experience? Excellent question, Steve. So you'd think with a Latin mother, she would be someone who would espouse emotion, but in fact, my mother, who had been you know, engaged in her own battle, she was the youngest of seven sisters and two brothers. And very often, nobody wanted to hear her opinion. So was, when she would open up her mouth at home, she got clapped over the mouth. So very early on, she had this chip on her shoulder that no one ever was going to shut her up ever again. Consequently, she brought that to the relationship with my father. I remember very clearly at one point losing my job as an adult. And calling my mother and saying, hey, listen, this is what happened. It was just a weird set of circumstances. It was like a week before Christmas. Hadn't bought my girls anything for Christmas. It was just really bad. And all I really wanted was my mother to say it was going to be all right. And instead, she got this. It was, just a, it was just a phone call. But I could almost imagine like her top lip tightening against her teeth. And she said, you know, you put your boots on and you strap them up and you get up and you get out of the house and you... St- get out on that street and you make it happen, which is great, but it's not necessarily, I didn't need a pep call. I needed uh, a little bit of empathy. And that's something that my mother had in short supply. 
And to be frank, that's the way she was conditioned growing up. So my father was the somehow cool, passionate one. He played piano so beautifully. It was like people falling in love with him, just hanging on the edge of his black baby grand. All the students loved him because he could somehow articulate the passion and the intellect of the Latin language. And yet he was so fucked up about showing it, like ashamed, like he almost didn't have a right to. And so I took that as the opposite type of example. My dad would tell me something and I was boom out on the streets, ready to experiment, which to be frank, scared the shit out of him. And so that's when he and I started to separate a little bit. And he didn't think that he could trust me with anything because I was this like woohoo with my hair on fire. I was like ready to try everything because at that point it wasn't about getting anything right. It was just about experiencing life, both the sweet and the sour, all of it. I was into it all. So it sounds like neither of your parents for you provided a, I was a useful emotional model to copy Mm -hmm. or any kind of really examples or support in like, here's how to deal with this aspect of things. Oh, absolutely. And and we've talked about in other episodes here. It's not like we, especially when you were growing up, live in a world that was really embracing the idea of men being emotional, vulnerable creatures who sometimes are hurt, sometimes are scared and all of that. I only heard my father cry. Well, I heard my father cry twice. Once was a, it was a snowstorm out and my mother decided that she was going to hang out with her girlfriends after work and she didn't call them. And me and my brother were up in the bed. We shared a room at the top of the stairs with their bedroom and the, and the, bathroom and heard my mother come in and came up the stairs and my father slowly came up after her and heard this terse conversation when he was like you know couldn't you call couldn't you just let me know and she was just like blowing him off tony please you're drunk and my father didn't drink he had a counter full of booze but it was for professor parties that kind of thing and uh i'll never forget he said yep yep i'm drunk i paid with it with my balls and i'll drink it if i want And I was ready to come out of my bed, had my hands on the door. And all I wanted to do was just run up to him and hug him and tell him that someone loved him. Because clearly in that moment, my mother had such disdain for him. And at the same time, my brother said, no, don't you dare go out there. Don't you dare. I'm like, okay. See, again, giving my power away to someone else and what they think should be happening. Instead of what I thought. Were your parents still together when the incident with your sister happened? Yep. Clearly, the relationship had been on the outs. They'd been sleeping in separate bedrooms probably for over a year and a half. I kept asking my dad, like, why was my mother still here? Clearly, the relationship was over, and he was, like, mumbling something about saving money on insurance or something. I I, I don't know. I think both of them thought that at some point they could reconcile if they just gave each other enough space, and that didn't end up happening. So, yeah, my parents were there present, but not necessarily together. So this rape of your sister, how did that affect the family going forward? Like what happened next there? Such a traumatic sort of event and the kind of thing that can really tear families apart. Yeah, it's exactly what happened. It destroyed the family. My sister left not long after I remained for a little while and then broke out on my own. And even when I thought that I wasn't going to be cast as the villain years later, my mother and I would be on the phone and she might've had a couple glasses of wine to drink. And she would mumble something like, you know what you did to your sister? Like what? And my sister would say, you know, Adam, it's not like you hurt me. You could admit to it now if you want, just to bring the healing. And I, you know, broke down and I thought that's such a beautiful gift. I wish I could take it. But the fact is that I know I didn't do it. So my brother disappeared and spent about 15 years out on his own life. 
in a succession of unsuccessful relationships. And I got the call that my father passed away. So we all met in the house a couple of days after he was uh, cremated. And that's when my brother turned to my sister and admitted that it was actually him in the bed that night, not me. And all of us were completely stunned. And my first instinct was, you've released me from my cage. Don't put yourself in the cage. All of us have paid the price for this. Now what? And it wasn't until later that I realized that I carried that motherfucker's water for 15 years and never once got an apology. He kind of said he was sorry in the moment. But my sister turned to me and said, you know, I would have gone to my deathbed thinking it was you. Because I guess there's this moment of uh, transference when there's such an emotional shock to the system that the brain will sometimes attach a face that's not quite so shocking. So because my sister and I had been very close and worked very hard to become close after the incident. So somehow my sister and I, I think thought that in healing our relationship, we could heal everyone else's. But the fact is everybody gets to uh, carry their own water. So 15 years, you carried the weight of this accusation around. And I guess a, a couple of questions that come up for me first, what was it, do you think, that kept you from protesting these accusations more strongly and you know, really fighting against them? So I'll start with that one. After sure. I guess I would say, you know, when you've got four out of five people who are willing to believe it, there's only so much you can say for so long before it's just, okay, there's no point even talking about it. But the fact is that I have only ever wanted my family to be whole, healthy, and complete in relation to all the other sisters and brothers and cousins that we have out there. We used to spend a 4th of July's out in my, uh, my uncle's house in Medford, Massachusetts, and there might be 40, 50 people in this house playing old Cuban records. One of my uncles had a very small recording career in Cuba. So these 4th of July parties were amazing experiences for me, both culturally and relationally to be just in this soup of sweat and music and food. It was phenomenal. And I think I, it was so affected me that I just keep going back to that. Like, why the fuck can't it be like that again? And granted, you know, there was always something coming up, right? It was like, don't invite the family to a wedding because someone's going to say something weird. So I always kept this vision of how it could be. And so that's where I tried to uh, insert myself in the middle and try to create healing, whether if that was sending my brother an email telling him that I love him and don't expect to hear anything back from him. Just wanted to let him know that, you know, it was 15 years that he disappeared. And then after my father passed, it was another 18 years that he was gone. And I happened to be driving from Canada, Florida and got online and found his address and pulled up in front of his house and looked like it had been overgrown or whatever. I went around the corner to talk to some people who were playing basketball. I said, do you know the people that live? And I turned around and I went back to the car and there he was next to my car. And I almost fell over dead because he looked exactly like my father. Exactly. 350 pounds on this frame. I mean, it, it's big. And he's like, what are you doing here? Like nothing, man. I was just coming by. I just wanted to show you some love. That's it. So what'd you think was happened? Like nothing, not expecting anything to happen. All I wanted to do was just tell you that I love you, that there's someone out there who loves you. Don't give a shit about everything else. It's like you have the whole family who is aligned against you, convinced that because your sisters accused you that you did rape her, even though you didn't and you protested that. And you're the one who ends up taking on the burden or holds the burden of trying to create and find family. Do you think that's something that 
mattered more to you than your siblings or your parents? Or why do you think it is that that's a thing you I, took I think on versus? I think it's a, an aside that my mother threw at me once in a conversation. She said, Adam, if there's ever going to be healing, it's going to be up to you. And I don't know why she said it. And I don't know why I took it on. But I understood exactly what she meant in the moment that I would have the capacity, I would have the bandwidth of heart and compassion and grace to be able to prostate myself in front of everybody and go, if I can do it, why can't you? And I'm not saying that it'll ever be that way or there'll ever be another 4th of July. I get that. But I also get that there's generational consequences. This type of thing doesn't happen in one particular snippet of the timeline. It's something that happens again and again and again. And I want to put a stop to it here and now. And so you ask me, why me? Why not me? Someone has to. Some people would argue that nobody has to. That's, that's the kind of world I don't want to live in, though. I'm also curious about how you got through 15 years of having this accusation out there, having the impact it had on, on your family. How did you deal with having that in your history as you went through those years? I wrote a lot, I drank a lot, and I did lots of drugs. I self-medicated with what I had at the time. When I was coming up, I wasn't aware of anything or any organization like the Mankind Project or here in Asheville, there's a group called Journeyman. I was not aware of any particular group of initiated elders who were standing for younger men. I was not aware of anything else except a football coach who would say, is it broken? Spit on it and get back out there. Back in the day at the Rotary or at the, at the Elks Club, where there are guys having side conversations about, we really should get together and just do a men's night, man. Men's circle, no alcohol, what do you think? Even as early as the early 2000s, 2010s, I still wasn't aware of it, which is one of the reasons why I put together a podcast. It didn't last very long, but it was the whole idea about connecting up resources for other men so that they could be in relationship with other men because the healing that can come from a group of guys who, without judgment, listen to somebody and let everything spill out. I've heard stories that have just broken my heart wide open and I walk away from that such a better man. There's a lot of power in one, feeling heard, and two, not feeling alone. But we can only learn that in relationship, which is what you're talking about, I think. Couldn't agree more. And I think that's why, you know, being part of a kitchen crew really, you know, spoke to me then and spoke to me now. And now I use my, my interaction in these type of environments to encourage more compassion and grace and self-acceptance and so that they could start treating others with that same type of love. And I use love unabashedly because I don't know any other word for it because at the quantum level, every single time we're putting our hands on stuff that people will put in their mouths, pair a dish for you, Steve, and you're going to take that in and it's going to go all the way through. It's either going to feed you or it's going to be like a dead rock and you're going to pass it through like a peach pit. So if I'm going to spend my time doing anything, whether it's artfully or whatever, I want to do it with the best and clearest intention so that it can serve someone else. And maybe that's just an essence of who I am, but I also get that's the essence of hospitality is being in service to someone else in a way that maybe they're not aware of. Because once you carry that type of energetic nutrition with you, it heals a lot of wounds. It's really easy for me as we've unpacked some of your personal story here to see where the perspective that you take on hospitality in, in that world and what you're doing there makes so much sense. And I want to shift over to that. But before I do, one more thing I want to ask you about as it relates to your family is, 
So once your brother comes clean and it's like, okay, actually I'm the one who raped your sister. What happened from there as far as your family and where are the these different relationships at this point in time? My sister has gone through a series of revelations and uncoverings for her. As a matter of fact, it's just, I want to say about a year or so ago, she did a, a video and sent it to all of us in which she felt it incredibly necessary to speak her truth and tell all of us, the four of us, her perception of how we treated her as she was coming up. And it ain't easy to listen to because she's telling her truth from her perspective and there's no way to argue that. And so I listen to what she says about me and I swallow deeply and I take everything that she says to heart and I sit with it for a couple of days. And then I send her an email and saying, listen, I am sorry if I ever did anything to hurt you, take away your power, silence your voice. I regret that deeply. And she says to me, thank you, Adam. You're the only one who said anything. And I was like, shit, you gotta be fucking kidding me. Really? Like some people get to come to their own truths in their own time. My sister really went out on a limb to exercise this from her physical and emotional being. And I honor that. And I just have to hope that everyone in their turn will do the same. So she and I have a strong relationship. My brother still lives where he lives. And I speak to him not very often. And my youngest sister, Melanie, who lives on a mountaintop, I say that laughingly, but the pain of growing up in our family is such that she can't bear to speak to anybody. And so I hold that gingerly and lovingly. And of course, my mother and I are still have our relationship, which is ever ongoing and developing. And she's incredibly vibrant. It, I don't know, 85, 86, 80. She takes care of older people. <laughs> like who can be older than you, mom? I'm not sure about that. She's incredibly vibrant and very much as she has always been, but now she is, um, much more thoughtful, much more, I don't want to say regretful, but she, I think it's come to the point where all she wants to do is just, what do we got to do? Fix it. Let's just fix it. Let's just fix it. Cause it really doesn't matter. Nothing matters other than love. So everything else is just a distraction. So how do we like get everything clear? It sounds like with your family, the healing is incomplete, that there's been some repair, but it's still a work in progress. These stories sometimes take a very long time to write and there are definitely pieces mm -hmm. yet to be written. I think if there's been a big aha for me, especially in the last say three, four years is that there's my timing and there's universal timing. Let's shift over to the, the world of hospitality and restaurants sure. and all of that. And so we know you got your start washing dishes, as you said, and you saw this example of, oh my gosh, look, here is this dance of connection and shared purpose and cause. And wow, this is this powerful thing. And so tell me some about you know, how your career journey has gone from there to where you are at this point. Yeah, I'd say that uh, my saving grace is I'm endlessly curious and I'm a really fast learner because earlier on, there was no money for culinary school. As a matter of fact, other than the CIA, the Culinary Institute of America, at that point, I, don't, I think that was the only way to go if you were going to do it. Because back in the day, um, the hospitality industry did a really, really good job at making sure that they took on the training of newbies. So very often you would go to work for a French or German or Swiss chef as, a, as an apprentice and you'd be there for a year. And if that meant spending four months peeling potatoes, that's what you did. But you got an education that was unlike anything that you'd 
that was possible outside of that. And I know a very good friend of mine who actually did a year with a French chef, German chef, and then a Swiss chef. And all of them were equally, you know, boorish and demanding and thought that their toques came to a point over their heads. So I lied a lot to get into jobs. I remember applying to a Greek diner and the guy's like, can you clean a tenderloin? Yes, chef. No, no problem, sir. No problem. And luckily on the day that I was hired, there was a guy next to me cleaning beef tenderloin and I'm watching him over the shoulder. That's why there's this thing where some chefs have this hiked shoulder on one side because they don't want anybody looking over it. But I was enthusiastic. I was energetic. I was affable. I think people liked me to be around because I was always willing to do just about anything. I eventually worked myself up to a restaurant in East Lansing, Illinois. I grew up at a place called Hammond, which is right between Gary and Chicago. And um, in this uh, country club was kind of smack in the middle of that. And it was a female chef. And for the first time ever in my experience, I had a female supervisor and she made sure that I was going to bear the brunt of almost every single ill that had ever been visited upon her in her entire career. (laughs) She wasn't violent, but she wanted to make sure that I wasn't shit. And that I remembered that and that she was the boss. And, and I remembered that. So for most of my career, every sous chef I ever had was, was uh, a woman because it makes great balance. And whether that's from a culinary perspective or an emotional perspective, it's a beautiful mix. And to have the feminine, and the masculine balanced in the kitchen is something that, that I am very keen to promote because I understand even now how difficult it is for Um, some women to come up in the industry, especially in pastry. As early as, or as late as 2011, I worked with a pastry chef, Italian, incredibly talented, hated Americans and hated women. And when you've got four young culinary school interns in your space and you got an attitude like that, it's not too long before it comes out. So worked a lot in, like I said, having thousand conversations a day, talking about how we could shore this up, change perspective. And as a coach and a mentor, I realized that's really my only job is to offer a different perspective in such a way that someone else could actually acknowledge that and maybe take that on or at least consider taking it on. So I've worked my way up to corporate chef, executive chef, also been fired from some really great jobs. I was five years on opioids for two consecutive back surgeries. And I got a corporate job and said the wrong thing to the wrong guy at a bar after work one day. And the next day I was out and I was on the island of Tortola, British Virgin Islands with about 15 tabs, half a bottle of rum. And I'm like, okay, what am I going to do? I can't fly back to Miami every month. That's $500. So what am I going to do? Do I even know where my pain is after now? Is it real pain or is it ghost pain? What actually am I medicating against? So uh, in that moment, I decided that I was just going to roll myself up in a blanket and sweat it out for three days, called out from work. I was 290 pounds, bloated, sick. And I just started walking everywhere all along the island. Not that big of an island, but it's pretty hilly. And I'm pretty clear that in that moment, I decided that I was going to thrive and not just survive my life. Why do you think it is that in that moment where you said you had this decision to make, right? Am I going to survive or am I going to thrive? With all the hardships and challenges and obstacles that you had experienced along the way up to there. Why do you think it is that you made the decision to pursue the thrive route? Because I was got really scared to be frank. I was filled with so much fear because I looked at myself in the mirror that day and it's probably something I hadn't done consciously 
in several years, especially in the thick of the opioid use. I had a beautiful son and two amazing daughters, and I wanted to be around for them because I recognized just how much time I had sacrificed for my career while they were growing up. And although I couldn't replace that, I could at least be present for the time that exists now. And also because I thought I deserved it. I recognize that it's our birthright as human beings to be able to enjoy our lives. And most of us, myself included, are really good at creating mind games that hold us down. And, you know, my ego's name is Sluggo, you know, from the old Nancy comic strips. (laughs) Sure. And so Sluggo, he's a prick sometimes, pardon my English, but he's also somebody who, if I don't love like, I, I don't want to be battling him because I know that's when he's got the hands up. He's got the edge up. The only, only time I've ever been able to slither out of his grasp has been to love him up like me. How did you learn the trick of when Sluggo shows up, instead of kind of pushing back and fighting against him, to basically give him a hug and give him some love? How did you figure <laughs> that out? <laughs> I had the unique privilege to go down to Costa Rica to a resort called Rhythmia, and that's where they use plant medicine and under very rigorous conditions, and was able to perceive it. So under this ayahuasca trip, very cinematic. So I'm sitting in a movie theater, the entire place is empty, and down eight rows is Sluggo, who's drunk off his ass and laughing and continuing to make jokes as I'm trying to watch the movie. And I walk down there and instead of like rousing him up out of the chair and throwing him out of the theater, I just clocked him around the head and gave him a noogie on it. Yeah, I love you too, pal. And he fell asleep. And so I was able to watch the rest of the movie, which happened to be a reflection of my lifetime, as it were, not a life review, but just certain points in my life where I had recognized that my addiction all along had been to negative self-talk. So somewhere along the line, I got really addicted to kicking my own ass and I didn't really need any help from anybody else. And it got to a point where if I continue to do that, there is really not much left. Now, when we talk about something using the the word addiction, right, we get, well, there's a benefit, even if it's momentary and small and ultimately unfulfilling. So tell me about what you got or what you think you got from that beating yourself up. Curious about that. I guess you would have to ask from which perspective. So I think, or at least I believe that part of our ego's function is to keep us safe, even if that keeps us small. In Britain and Australia, a couple other places, they talk about the tall poppy syndrome. If you're in school and you're the one that's shining bright and you're standing up all above the poppies, you know, the system pretty much snaps you and cuts you down to size. Now, that's a very apropos name for how, where I grew up, Everybody keeps each other small, right? Nobody gets to be that good without somebody taking the piss out of them and bringing them down to their size because misery loves company. And it's only gotten to the point now where I don't really care what anybody else has to say or think about me. All I know is that my life is going to be of excellence. And if that means I have to try and fail 750 times, then that's what I'm going to do. But I just want to make sure that my life has a consequence, that I am at cause for other people getting to live the life that they want to. Because I'm really sick and tired of seeing another Facebook post, another Instagram post of another chef who committed suicide because of drugs or alcohol, or they got taken for some financial scam. It just happens way, way too often. And it just seems to me that there's lots more work to do because the mental health and wellness quotient 
of the hospitality industry is such that it's been so overlooked and actually enabled by the industry. Everything's good as long as you're putting money in the till, no matter how outrageous you are. But as soon as the money dries up, then it's all, dude, I can't have you around here. Sorry, out. And that's like, well, wait, put up with me last week. How come not this week? So there's a lot of boundaries that get to be drawn. It seems like a prioritization that has some unintended, but really major consequences. And I want to definitely talk more on that. But I first, I want to make just a note, I'm thinking about back to Sluggo and the addiction to negative self-talk because the pushing back against this sort of bully self that we have versus embracing it and the learning to find self-acceptance and being nicer to yourself, both such powerful shifts when you make them for sure. And I think that combination, I can see how addressing those two could have been incredibly powerful in helping you to be able to move forward personally and professionally. It was the first inkling I had that there was something other than the relationship that I had been used to. And so this whole idea about loving my ego as myself, and I have a teacher who says, you know, there is no ego. There's just you, dude. Okay. So bullshit or whatever, it's just you. And I get that. However, being able to externalize or put a label on that voice, if only for a moment is a tool along the path of mastery so that after a while you don't need that anymore. And so that whole shift behind, I don't have to fight him. Like, yeah, just agree with him. Just agree with him. Adam, you're full of shit. Yep. You're right. And all of a sudden he shuts up because he's got nothing to rail against. That was a gift from a good friend, Jeannie Selda, crazy woman from Canada. She's the first one to act. She said that to me. No, just agree with your ego. It's so much faster than having to deal with that ongoing battle. I liken it to the story in the Bible where you're wrestling the angels all night long to give me your name. Give me your name. It's tiring wrestling all night long. In Buddhism, they talk about the Buddha inviting Mara to tea as another framing of this, the same idea. And if we look at it from a more of a neuroscience standpoint, and we start looking at the brain and all these different parts of the brain and how they interconnect, yeah, we're just one being, but the reality is our brains do have all these different parts that do interface and interact in different ways. And learning how to find ways to externalize that and how we can conceptualize it, I think is super powerful in doing that. I think that's really what we're, what we're talking about here. I, I couldn't agree more. Yeah. As you said, it was the first kind of signal to me that uh, there can be another relationship that's possible here. And I, like I said, I'd gotten so used to the negative self-talk that if things were going good, you know, there's constantly a thought in the back of my head of like, okay, we're just waiting for the shoe to drop. Cause it's not the first time in my life that everything looked great. And then something happened. So you're constantly waiting. And so I end up manufacturing that in the quantum field and in 5d and dropping in 3d like no one look at me i'm right aren't i smart yeah self-fulfilling prophecies are a thing for sure (laughs) Um, (laughs) and i'm wondering here how much you think that was influenced by the experience of this accusation from your sister because certainly that had to have been an out of the blue talk about not even another shoe dropping but here you are going through life and then boom here's this i liken the event to the original sin but not necessarily in the context that you one would think of when you say that and my original sin was is that right after the confrontation in the house i went upstairs to my room i grabbed my bag i started putting some clothes in it because i was going to leave the house And my brother came up and he grabbed me by the arm and his face was a sheet of tears. He's like, don't go, don't go, don't go, don't go. And I looked at him and I put the bag down and I said to myself, I can handle it, but these guys can't. 
So maybe I should just stick around as if it was important for me to save them from something, whatever, the, the rage of my parents or whatever. But because I'd been so used to like, as the eldest, you know, breaking all the rules and catching all the shit, I thought that I should just stay. And in that moment, that's the original sin when I gave my power away to what others thought. Because truth being, as a writer, I love to think this stuff out. What would have happened if I had gone to my buddy's house and refused to come back until the truth came out? How long could that pressure cooker have gone on without something breaking and the truth coming out? A lot sooner than 15 years. It's complete conjecture. And who knows if it would have helped with Amy's healing with the whole thing, because I got to keep prefacing the fact that she was the one that was physically abused. So comparing pain is a useless exercise, but I just want to presence myself to the fact that I have no idea how much she suffered. I don't think there's more about that I can say. You know, Adam, you're such a relationally focused person. And I'm thinking about that back in the context of restaurants and the hospitality industry and uh, imagining at least that a lot of the chefs and others in that world are more focused on the skill and craft of making food. And so that difference to me seems like something that could be both an opportunity for you, but also maybe a challenge. I'm interested in your thoughts about that. Yeah, I think uh, one of the things that interested me most is I don't know if I had enough confidence in my culinary ability early on, but I really understood systems very quickly. And I noticed that in successful restaurants, there is a series of layering of systems, checks and balances as it would be. And that's what I focused on for most of my career is, as my wife likes to say, I bring order out of chaos. So I can walk into a facility where it looks like things are going crazy and divine intuitively what's happening from an aspect of, I can just kind of like, okay, so these are the systems that are missing. These are the things that you need to put into place and assist them from that standpoint. And it wasn't until, believe it or not, after years of being an executive chef and corporate chef, I was asked to be a sous chef of a guy that I had originally hired as a sous chef 20 years ago at this huge resort in West Virginia, or not West Virginia, I'm sorry, Virginia, but all the way West almost to the West Virginia line. And at that point, my wife and I, or my wife-to-be, and I had been together for about five years, and I thought our world was going to be just she and I together. And so when the offer came, I was kind of like stamping my feet, and like, why should I do this? And ultimately, it was so easy for me to go there. And within a week, I was hired, processed on property and everything. So instead of focusing on, say, systems, even though that was part of my job, what I realized that really my love And my passion came from, as I said, going around having these thousand conversations a day, just checking in with people, seeing where they're at. And so it became an emotional anchor, not for me personally, but that there needed to be a emotional anchor. Like there needed to be some space where as, and this is where I think that leadership is a red herring. I think what's really needed now, particularly, and moving into the future is a new sense of mentorship where there is a relationship between the mentor and the mentee in such a way that you're willing to allow the mentee to make mistakes without it costing lives or dollars or whatever. But to be close enough vis-a-vis elbow to elbow 
so that they know that they're supported. And sometimes in organizations, people get thrown into jobs where they've shown some aptitude in another job, like almost the Peter principle. You know, you're really good as a fry cook, so I'm going to put you on the grill. Or you're really good as a server, so I'm going to make you a manager without giving them the tools or the training piece. And I found that really the most powerful ones are role-playing. You know, that there's absolutely no, there's no way that role-playing can be minimized in any of these positions because until you've had the experience of having a mad server who's been brutalized at the table, coming back, throwing a plate across the window, how are you going to deal with that? And so to someone who aspires to be a sous chef, an executive chef, those are the soft skills that need to be learned early on. And to do it in a protected environment, such as role-playing, is very important. And to do that consistently in time and time into repetition. So that led me along the lines of, okay, so what kind of culture would need to be in place in order for this to just be part of the entire package. And I didn't see that in a lot of organizations. A lot of organizations are about grinding out the profit margin because that is their biggest motivator. And there doesn't leave a lot of room in there in order to, you know, bring a whole swordfish in and break it down and teach others how to actually fillet this 400 pound beast. And that's unfortunate. So moving forward, I'm looking for organizations for groups of chefs who are the smart operators, the ones who understand that in this particular time in our economy and in our craft, that if we don't invest ourselves in these particular primal managerial tasks, such as mentoring, such as doing training ongoing, that we're going to be left outside the dark because right now there's very little applicant flow. And as most people in the United States know right now, Everybody thinks they're open for business, so they're rushing into their favorite restaurants to find that instead of 10 servers, they have three and expecting the same type of service. And it's just not going to happen. It's, and it's a hard truth for everybody to come to because the people in the industry is just be kind. <laughs> just be kind, man. Know that it's just not us. It's everybody. There is a monumental shift occurring right now in the industry. And as I said, the smart operators will get on this right away. And they're the ones that will be making the moves and creating not only an industry, but a culture within the industry that is going to be something that is going to be supportive, empowering, empathetic, community-driven. It's going to be all those things. And it's going to be make for some much stronger restaurants. And it's going to make for some much stronger communities. I'm in, very interested in your take on what we're hearing referred to in a lot of cases as a, a labor shortage, or there's different framings of what's going on with the fact that a lot of restaurants are essentially understaffed and really not having success in t- trying to address that. So I'm curious about your take about what's going on and what is necessary here to get this unstuck. So the most recent statistics are that during the year of COVID, there were 100,000 restaurants nationwide that closed. I'm pretty sure that number is much higher than that, but those are the official statistics. And if you consider that each restaurant employed anywhere between 10 and 200 people, that's a whole lot of people that were pretty violently thrown out of work almost overnight. That's pretty harsh because unfortunately, and I'll take responsibility for this because a lot of people like to say, oh, it's the industry. It's the owner. No, we're the industry. I'm the industry. I work in it. I own it. So I say that, yeah, we have squandered human capital for way too long. And this goes back probably to the 70s and 80s when there became a shift for for-profit culinary schools. And I know that this is a very tenuous thing. But the fact of the matter is up until then, you know, if you wanted to go to work at a restaurant, you went to work in the restaurant and you became an apprentice. 
after that, you could go to a culinary school and they would tell you that you're coming out of the XYZ culinary school in Tampa with all the skills you need to be a chef. Wrong. The industry was flooded with these folks who thought that they knew this is what they wanted without having any real industry experience. A little bit later, the millennials start showing up in the job and they're like, we don't want to have to work all weekend long. We don't have to want to work 14 hours a day. We don't want this. We don't want that. Da, 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 da. And a lot of older chefs got pissed off at that. Like, what are you talking about? I had to pay my dues. Why can't you pay your dues? And I would be the first one to say, well, to be honest, they're not asking for anything that we didn't want to ask for. We just didn't think that there was any possibility we could ever get it. So we just put up and shut up and just ground down like who wouldn't want to work, you know, Friday, Saturday and get Sunday off or whatever that particular circumstance was. But the millennials came with a particular perchance for saying, nah, not really for me. See you later. And walking, which for, you know, again, some of the older chefs are like, what are you talking about? You're just going to leave. So there's these series of influences that have created this perfect storm. And not to mention that there were too many restaurants, way too many restaurants for any particular town or city to properly support. And that's because a lot of people had passion projects. A lot of people had restaurants because they just wanted to have a free meal on Saturday night and be the big king on the block. Now, I know this is a broad characterization and is not necessarily apropos to a lot of operators who were out there doing their due diligence, who would look on the street and say, okay, there's an Italian restaurant there. There's a Mexican restaurant there. What's not here? Indian restaurant. Okay, I'll open up an Indian restaurant. Like for an operator, for a businessman, you're going to get, you're going to open up a business and serve a need but there's only so many pizza joints you can put on one street. I, I like pizza a lot. So there could be a lot of different pizza joints. I could have one for every night of the week. You but I get what you're saying. And there's some folks who said that there's probably a few folks that were in the industry that shouldn't have been in the industry. I'm not going to put this on the, on the people who are filling the positions. I'm going to put this on us as an industry and us as innovators and operators that you get fat and lazy and you don't put a 2% of your overall revenue in a rainy day fund because you think that you're going to need to spend more on social media. It's just not the way good business is done. So it's a mindset. It's a perception where I'm going to be here for the long haul. That means I have to plan for rainy days or stoppages, making sure if I have the right insurance, making sure I have the right stuff. And listen, I have some very good friends who opened up restaurants on shoestrings and barely survived COVID. And they're coming out of it looking pretty good. But that's not many folks. I mean, one person I'm thinking of in particular put his entire life on the line. And when it came down to it, it was him and his stepson in the restaurant. And that was it. So he was willing to do just about anything in order to get by because he knew at some point there was going to be an end, just like everything. It just, it's going to have a beginning. It's going to have a middle. It's going to have an end. We just have to have the tenacity to see it through. But if you're not prepared for that, it makes it a lot harder. So I think this is a, an amazing time for the industry. I think it's the grand reset where good operators get better. Shoddy operators go by the wayside and find another industry to get into. But there's a whole lot of folks who are worthy of employment that are looking for safe, honorable, community-driven operators. Because I think that the number one thing that we can do better as, a, as an industry is to create stronger community, both within our operations and without. Because again, I keep coming back to this thing about why I got in the industry to begin with. And I think it's still true today. People want to be long somewhere. It's one of the most human wants and needs there is. Yeah. And family can only go so far in that. <laughs> family can't be the end all be all. We've seen what has happened as we've tried to turn our marriages and those relationships into like an end all be all 
one-size-fits-all relationship. It doesn't work. We need more than one community or, or connection for sure. One of the things that I want to also take some time to talk about, and I think this is a good place to, to bring it in, sure. is the podcast that you do. Mm. And so how did that come into being and what do you see its role as a part of your, I'll say, mission sure. to do what you're doing here? I'll say about the 2014, I was completely out of industry and was in Toronto with my girlfriend who would become my wife. And of course, I didn't have a, a work permit and was wondering what to do with my time. And at this point, she says to me, I think you're supposed to be working for us. I'm like, what are you talking about? And she's like, I could help. I can use some help in the company. And it was online learning and personal development, stuff like that. And what could I possibly bring to that? And she says, you project management, don't you? And it's when I realized that every day of my career, that's exactly what I did as project man. So it was an amazing thing, but I missed being in the kitchen. So not knowing anything, again, as being endlessly curious and, and not aware of my own ineptitude, I had this beat up little laptop and a USB mic that, that Jennifer lent me and I decided I was going to do a podcast. And so I started creating this podcast as a love letter back to the particular operation that I had just left and the people that inhabited it. And it started to become a thing. So it at first, it was like a drunken lark talking to people on the phone and da, da, da. And I tried all kinds of different iterations of streaming it live and then archiving it or doing it straight as a podcast. And then somewhere along the line, came across this idea of like, okay, so what's the difference between a good chef and a great chef? What makes one chef worthy to be followed and the other one not? And I asked a lot of questions and then said, well, it came down to leadership. What, like, what's leadership? Explain to me what's leadership. So created a 10 episode podcast called Be a Better Chef. And it went through these tenants that we had come down and determined were essential for any great leader or mentor to have, regardless of actually whether being in the kitchen or not. And that got a lot of play. People really liked that. And it was also doing some interviews and it was a mixed concept podcast. And so I ran that for about three and a half years until such time as I thought, I'm done with this. Now I'm not going to be, I'm not going to be working in the restaurant industry anymore. I'm going to go on. I'm going to coach men. <laughs> and needless to say that that's my wife's been doing it for 20 years. So I'm looking at her and I'm looking at my business. Like, why isn't the one scaling like the other one? And, oh, I forget. She's been doing this for 20 years. So again, kind of like giving it up to the universe going, God damn it. I want it on my time. Like, why isn't this happening? So one day I got fed up. I got fed up with my own bullshit and said, listen, why don't I just go do something I have some mastery in for a while so I can shift my energetic spirit so I can get more into love and compassion and just enjoy things. And then we can launch it off. So that's when I got the job here in Asheville at the retirement community, which managing 650 residents and 120 staff was a huge job. And for two years, I didn't touch social media, didn't even look at it. Because I had been in relationship every day. You're walking down the hallway and someone's grabbing you. Like, I want to tell you one thing about lunch yesterday. And as that opportunity came to a close, I realized that at this particular time, again, in, with the industry and with the economy, this would be a great time to bring back Chef Life Radio. Because the original intent was to empower chefs with the knowledge to become not only great leaders, but great business people. And more than anything else, show them that there's a way of being where they can actually enjoy their life. Because I don't know about you, Steve, but have you met very many happy chefs? I have not met many happy people in the restaurant industry. I, 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 there's a few. I, I know one guy who actually runs a small restaurant here who seems actually very happy. Yeah. But he's got a 
he's worked really hard to do that. And it's a pretty unique setup. Yeah. For the most part, chefs are, and culinary people, I would say hospitality people are really unique characters. And there's a lot to be pissed off about. And very often, you know, that leads to misery loving company. And before you know it, it's end of close and you don't know what to do with the energy. So you sit down at the bar and you have a couple pops and then, and then after three drinks, anything seems reasonable. And that's really when the trouble starts. And so then how you wake up the next morning, you're completely burnt. You slag a quart of Pedialyte and get a couple, a uh, couple of uh, energy drinks to get to work. And it just begins a cycle that never seems to end. And so they end up really resenting the circumstances by which they're living their lives when they don't realize that they're the ones that are actually in control of the whole thing. So I would very much love to be able to assist anybody in the hospitality industry who's looking for a way out of that, a, a way to have a sustainable career where they can be healthy where they can enjoy themselves, enjoy their families. And as I said before, if I can keep one person from making the decision to transition to the other side before their time, then I will consider myself a lucky person. I think you're probably going to do a little bit more than that. (laughs) (laughs) And it seems like there's a real need there. Like this is such a difficult industry with so many challenges and stressors and some real dysfunction. But at the same time, one, just because of its volume and because of the need that it's filling that many people are in. So it's not like there's a lack of people who need this sort of support and these sorts of of messages. Not to say that I know everything, but I've had enough experience in my career with Dancing with the Devil and the Pale Moonlight to know that morning comes and you can create a life worth living that goes beyond thinking that you're going to be the greatest chef in the world because even the greatest chef in the world, the greatest chef in the world as named by a French magazine three years ago, killed himself because he got taken in a $1 million wine scheme. I'm sorry, a 1 million, a 1 million pound wine scheme. It had been the second time he'd been voted the best chef of the, in the world. Uh, A guy by the name of Benoit Villiers, who was running a small Swiss hotel who left behind uh, not only his wife, but two children and like to be named the best chef in the world. And then to commit suicide, it just, and just a final tip of the toke to the guy who we thought had it clocked, the guy who we thought had it made in the shade, had come through the grind, and now had it all, Anthony Bourdain. Like, I, I get that some folks are like Hunter S. Thompson, they come to their end, or they're going to they're gonna call it, they're going to make their way under their own power, and like Ernest Hemingway, but it just didn't make any sense to me. Didn't make any sense to me when Anthony Bourdain passed. So, you know, these are the unfortunate circumstances to which I align myself so that I can be of service to those that are looking for perhaps a different way of being. I know a number of people who've had some pretty serious substance abuse problems and addiction issues. I've heard stories of suicides. And this seems like an industry that at a higher rate than a lot of others just eats people up. I'd like to hear some more from you about what you think really is necessary to transform this into a healthier industry. Because again, it's so huge and there's so many people affected by it. Seems like a really important cause here. Yeah, I think it has to start early. From what I understand now in some of the culinary schools, there are more classes around how to deal with stress. But one of the first things I tell I really want to be a chef. Great. Get a hobby. What do you mean get a hobby? No, 
cooking is my life. Like, it better not be, or you're going to be in trouble. Like, culinary is a harsh mistress, and you will wake up alone every morning. Don't do that to yourself, man. And what I've found is that creative people are creative in very many ways. Like, you can't believe how many bands I've started with people just in a kitchen because there's a bass player, a drummer, just someone's writing, someone's... I knew a guy who purposely made furniture as difficult as it was for him. He purposely put himself through the pain of learning to make furniture because he knew that he needed to have another outlet for his energy. And the funny thing is that creative is as creative does. And it's a different way of filling your cup because if you can't fill your cup before coming to work, man, you got nothing left to give. It dries up pretty quickly. Art, history, writing, whatever it is, find something else to do other than just being a chef or working in the industry. And the most successful people I've seen are the ones who are balanced in such a way. I happen to rely a lot on self-nurture, and that means a daily process. First thing in the morning, twice a month, I do a saltwater float. I get a massage once a month. I go to the gym, I ride my bike, I do all those things because I happen to be a physical being, but that morning process of meditation for me is absolutely critical. And my wife will tell you midway through the afternoon, she's like, you didn't do your process today, did you? Nope, nope. Yeah, I can tell. Like Being an asshole, go back in that room and do your process and don't come out until you do. <laughs> so all these ways of healthfully self-medicating stress, because it's not enough just to think it, you have to physically get it out of your being. And so anything that goes along with that is good. So it has to start early and the the preaching has to be hard, has to be hard because it has to be consistent, I guess I should say. What I hear you talking about is really obviously self-care and, but really doing something that gives you a space to process the challenges, stresses, feelings, difficulties of life versus what does seem to be a real common thing in the world of hospitality of the numbing that comes with substance use and those sorts of things or food for that matter, right? Both of these are ways we can numb ourselves. And there's such a huge difference between dealing with our feelings by blocking them or cutting them off and dealing with them by finding a way to experience them and direct them somewhere, whether it's writing, whether it's creating music, art, something you know like that. And I think that's really the, the key difference that you're identifying here, it sounds like. I would also say, Steve, that very often when I drank, that's when I was able to access my emotions completely. The problem was, is that my filter was off kilter. So very often the person I was talking to maybe didn't deserve the anger that I had reserved for my boss. And so I just want to caution about this whole thing about numbing versus feeling, because I think in the moment we're just doing the best we can with the tools we have at the moment. And I don't necessarily know if numbing is necessarily what it is. I think for me, it was just not wanting to feel bad. Mm -hmm. So feeling anything else is fine, whether it's, you know, getting charged up after that first shot or, you know, after that first line or whatever, it felt like just not to feel bad. And again, because my addiction was my negative self-talk, I would be talking to myself in my head all day long about what I didn't do right here. It couldn't done right here. The fact is that I'm out at the bar and I should be home with my wife and the kids are going to wake up tomorrow. So I should feel guilty about that, that entire roller coaster of emotion. One of the things that alcohol will tend to do is it will tend to remove maybe some of the filters that we operate with. And I'm thinking about this specifically as it relates to you. And the thing I'm wondering is you've referenced multiple times in our conversation today about you really not standing up for yourself and your truth, but really focusing on others and their wants and needs and such. And really, so I'm thinking of this filter of what I feel, think, whatever, doesn't matter. Would this be fair to say that for you, 
alcohol or substances removed that filter and it allowed that to have expression it might not have had, even if it was maybe a not very graceful expression. Yep, I think that's absolutely accurate. It's almost like it gave me the right to own all of it. Yep, absolutely. What would you say have been the the primary ways in which you've been able to shift that where being able to find that expression of your truth, your wants and your needs in a way that doesn't involve alcohol and in a way that's more, I'll say more graceful or more, more effective? This is an ongoing process for me. I happen to have a very complicated relationship with food and with beverage. Having been a chef, I I get that there are some people who can be content with a bowl of rice (laughs) and some vegetables because they're looking at it as fuel for the body. A memory that I have relating to my father is that after my mother and him split and I had my very first daughter with my wife, Nora, at the time I was working on the way west side of Chicago and my dad was going to cook Thanksgiving dinner, expecting us at a certain time. And I had to work, of course, and we got there late. The entire sideboard was full of food. Like I thought that he was cooking like for 12 or 14 people and it was just for us three. And there was the American portion and the Cuban portion. I'm like, pa, wow, this is really incredible. He's like, yeah, it's it's dried out too. It's too late now. Poo-poo and the whole thing. But it's clear that he made this huge effort to put together something that we would enjoy. And I recognize the same thing that he was doing then I've done with my children about like creating this sumptuous buffet when they're coming over because I want them to be happy, some kind of substitute for authentic connection. And so I was just being present and aware of that. So to say that my that I have a very straightforward relationship with food and beverages would be incorrect. However, I would say that what I'm working at now is creating a sense of mastery around my daily or hourly habits, such as what I choose to put in my mouth, where I choose to work out, the books that I choose to read, the liquids that I choose to put in my body. I'm actually following a program called 75 Hard that has these five tasks that you're supposed to do every day. And I failed almost every single day. And the first failure is around food because I think the first tenet is you need to follow a diet. doesn't matter what diet it is, you need to follow a diet. And in almost every single case I've broken, I chose healthy keto intermittent fasting. And either I'm eating something early or I'm eating something late. And it's almost like an automatic function. So this idea of being present in the moment is something that I aspire to every moment. And it's still a tenuous thing for me. That's a tough one for sure. (laughs) And then when it relates to a topic that you have a complex or conflicted relationship with, it is a strong undertaking. It is. And one that I feel that I can ultimately be successful with because every day that goes by, I learn something a little bit more about myself that I didn't know the day before. And at 61, you'd think that I have gotten pretty clear about who I am and, and what I'm about. But even now, there's this expectation of discovery that I have every morning when I wake up. <laughs> Still don't know everything about me. What am, how am I going to surprise myself today? <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like the curiosity is still present. Yeah, hopefully, because I, I don't, yeah. it's It's been a very interesting journey, to say the least, and I'm so happy to still be here and still be part of the conversation and still be given an opportunity to be of service and love and assistance to you know, my brothers and sisters and to you and to your listeners. And thank goodness, man, it, life is just for a trish. Now, for you, what do you see is next on the horizon as you continue forward on this journey of curiosity? I've engaged with a coach who I've known for a while. I did not expect that she was going to be my coach, but she was the one who basically told me, hey, listen, you can, you can either do Noom, you can do 75 hard, either one, it's up to you, it doesn't matter. But I get that she's she's girding me for this 
idea of mental toughness and grit in order to take on the next challenge that's mounting before me, which is in order of consequence, the podcast, my writing, coaching, and then consulting. So I'd love to be able to consult with some hospitality organizations. They're really looking to shift their cultures uh, and their ways of being so that it can be almost a selling point to anybody out there who's looking for work. And I do some personal coaching for those who ask. It's not anything I advertise. And I write prolifically for a lot of um, online magazines about hospitality, but not exclusively. Lots of places to, uh, one, take action and, and get your message yeah. out there, but two, thinking about the curiosity standpoint, you know, it helps keep things interesting to be able to have these different things you can switch back and forth yeah. between. And the cross-pollination seems to be something, at least in my mind, that could have a lot of, of possibility too. Yeah, and just the infrastructure and, and uh, landscape of podcasting from when I did it seven, eight years ago to what it is now is amazing. The tools out there are just... Like some of them are pretty perplexing to me and I'm, it's taken me a little bit of time to get used to them. But, you know, before it was like, okay, you got Blurberry and a, and a WordPress website and you figure it out. <laughs> and now everything's automated and cross-referenced. It's really beautiful. It's a great time to be in the space. So I'm really enjoying it. This is one of those examples of where technology really does make things easier. There are a lot of amazing tools that make this uh, yeah. So much more possible to do in um, such a high level way than it would have been even five years ago, let alone 10. So the podcast, tell us where people should go to, to find the podcast and, and ca- yeah, check it currently out. Currently, it's available on all on all platforms. The website is chefliferadio.com. Uh, you can catch me on Spotify, iTunes, uh, just about everywhere. So I'm taking these hour and a half interviews and I'm scaling it back down to more of a narrative. So mixing the narrative with the interviews to create more of a story around each podcast, which takes a lot longer to do, but I'm really challenged by the by the whole idea of it. Some of my favorite podcasts are all narrative, This American Life, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So I listen to those constantly with my jaw on the ground and going like, how can I do that? That would be so cool. We've got a membership site set up right now where they're not unedited, but the full interviews are there. The entire back catalog of old episodes are there going all the way back to its original iteration, which was called Brigade Radio. And so that's uh, Chef Life Radio Crew, C-R-E-W.com. Once you become a member, you can either do it by monthly or yearly. It creates a very own RSS feed for you. So not only do you get all the back catalogs, but you get every newly published episode's directly to that particular web to, to that RSS feed. So you never have to change channels. It's pretty cool. And I'm on Instagram, Facebook, everywhere you need to be these days, I guess. As always, I'll, I'll put links to all of this stuff in the show notes so that uh, folks can track you down and follow you. Adam, I very much appreciate you taking the time to, to talk today. Really enjoyed the conversation and look forward to seeing um, what you do and your attempts to reshape and, and impact an industry that definitely could use a little help right now. It's moving in that direction. I'm just planning on giving a good goose. That's it for this episode of the Sensitive Rebel Podcast. Thanks so much for listening. You'll find show notes, other episodes, and a whole lot more at sensitiverebel.com. We'll be back next week with another conversation. Until then, keep moving forward.